0: Hi, I'm Ian Pringle and welcome to our brand new podcast, from New World Loyalty. Our aim in these podcasts is for us to help you make the most of your loyalty strategies by listening to us talk about what we love to talk about most, which is loyalty. So today I'm joined by Phil in Brisbane. Hi, Phil. Hi, Ian. And David in Atlanta.
1: Hey, Ian. How's it going?
0: Brilliant. And uh, and Craig in... Uh, are you in Auckland, Craig? You're somewhere in New
2: Zealand? Hey, correct. In Auckland, Ian. Good to talk to you. Fantastic.
0: Well, just before we get started, can we just go quickly round our room? I'm not sure everyone knows us in loyalty. Phil, can you give a quick introduction to yourself?
3: Sure. I guess I'm, I'm best known for launching and running Virgin's Velocity programme in Australia for a number of years and launching a lot of the innovations in the industry, including the Dynamic Rewards and Dynamic Earn, uh, which are quite popular now. Prior to that, I ran Rewards for Amex a number of years before, and more recently, through World loyalty, helping a number of airlines, retailers, banks, insurance companies um, with their loyalty strategies. Perfect. And uh, David?
1: Hi, I'm Dave Canty, based in Atlanta, Georgia. I've been in the loyalty space for the best part of 30 years. I started off with ITT Sheraton slash Starwood Hotels and Resorts. I was on the original team who built SPG. And then I moved into the retail space and developed a loyalty program for AutoZone, the the largest auto parts store in the United States. Got kind of fed up with that and moved back into travel and joined JetBlue uh, in New York. And much like Phil, kind of transformed the major airline space for loyalty with a, a first kind of revenue-based program for a major airline in the United States. And for the last four years, I've run all of IHG's global loyalty programs.
2: Fantastic. Thanks, David. And uh, Craig, yeah, thanks, Ian. It seems like it's a fossil brigade on the call because I've <laughs> uh, been working in loyalty on and off for 25 years. I started off in Melbourne, Australia, working for ANSEP Freak & Flyer and helped globalise the airline in the non-airline space, including extending out into cars, hotels, cards, etc., and then uh, morphed into casino, uh, retail, payments uh, and then in the last few years I've worked in health insurance, again in uh, Lotto and again in retail. I've done a blend of B2B, B2C, B2E, agency side, client side. So there's a fair breadth of knowledge here to tap into.
0: Fantastic, thanks, Craig. And I'm Ian Pringle. So I started in retail with Shell Smart back when I had hair. If anyone knows me, I don't think anyone in the loyalty industry knew me when I had hair, but I did have hair all those years ago.
2: <laughs> no, you didn't.
0: So I, I did that for four years, and then I, um, and then I ended up managing the Nectus program for EDF Energy. So I was a client of Nectar EDF Energy for four years. I then joined uh, Avios, where I. First of all, ran the retail loyalty partnerships for them, and then ended up running the uh, analytics and loyalty team at uh, Avios. And then I was head of strategy during the changeover between the Air Miles and the creation of Avios as a as a multi multi airline loyalty currency. I then worked at Virgin Atlantic, where I first met Phil. So fantastic! Well, thanks for that, guys. So the first thing I want to talk to you about today, David, it was your idea really to talk about why loyalty, why companies get into loyalty. So do you want to talk a bit about why you all thought that was a great subject for us to discuss?
1: yeah it's it's what i found interesting was the more conversations i had we've all kind of worked for organizations that have had loyalty programs more or more or less from the beginning or at least when we joined them when i left starwood and joined autozone one of the big questions i got when i first arrived there was why do we need a loyalty program it was very interesting because i had assumed that that decision had already been made considering they'd invited me in um, <laughs> so I kind of thought I better have a good answer for this or I'll be leaving pretty quickly <laughs> and the interesting thing was in that in that specific industry nobody had a loyalty program and the best way to look upon it was look there's a lot of there's a lot of customers out there who are interested in consuming what you're selling and they have choices, and in many cases, they kind of jump from one to the other uh, when there isn't a loyalty program. So by putting one in, uh, I was able to prove that we can actually create stickiness and allow you to actually get a bigger share of wallet from customers who were literally spreading their, their spend across multiple entities And I feel the same happens in all industries, both airlines, uh, hotels and in retail. So for me, that was the beginning and it was something that I was intent on proving out through analytics and, and data. So really kind of diving into the transactional behavior and getting learnings from that to inform future strategies. And that then informed a much bigger commercial strategy over and above loyalty. Loyalty just became an integral part to the overall commercial strategy.
0: Yeah, and I, I think uh, I, I agree. And I, I think people ask me all the time. You know, I, I think lots of companies come to Loyalty Eye saying, yeah, why should I have a loyalty program? And there's a bunch of reasons for that. But yeah, so hopefully within this podcast we can explore a few of those things in a bit more detail. So, I mean, we've all had experience of companies joining loyalty programs. So, you know, what are the what are the main reasons why people go to it, and uh, what are the more compelling good reasons and bad reasons that you've seen why companies have gone into it? I'll start. I'll
3: start with a negative, um, because one of the, one of the things I find is that people often think about having a loyalty program when it's too late, when they're losing customers. And so it's a reactive thing to, tr- to try and stop the people leaving. But by that stage, it is too late because a loyalty program takes time to build up momentum, build up stickiness, usually. And the other thing that is often the wrong driver is that uh, people see success of someone else's program and they say, I want a bit of that. For me particularly, I see a lot of that because people say they see the value that Velocity has in the market. And they say, I want a billion bucks, that'd be nice, thank you very much. And then they reach out and try to recreate something that somebody else has got. And that's the wrong driver. A loyalty program should only be, it can only be successful if it's actually supporting, like Dave says, actually supporting the core business and central to the core business, yeah, yeah. not just the me too. Correct. Totally agree. It's Craig, same, what
2: about you? It's the same. The reasons that people, the things I've seen around why loyalty programs aren't successful is one of them, is what Phil was saying. Around that whole, we've got to have one because our competitors got one, and which is not the right point. But the, and also when uh, they don't uh, communicate to customers, I remember seeing some stat, and as you know, in every industry, there's stats coming out of the wazoo for it, but it was about 80% of people who had signed up to a loyalty program didn't receive any other communication beyond, Welcome Craig, nice to have you join the program. So, therefore, the, the whole engagement piece is, is gone. But the, the reason, going back to the, the questioning, and I think the reason people should have a loyalty program, it varies significantly. And I, I laughed at David's comment around our, why should it be asked a question, seeing you've appointed me to run a loyalty program. But it was around the, for a client I've been working with recently, a lot of it, the benefits and more internal focus. Sorting out some regulatory issues, sorting out compliance stuff, working through a standard customer promise. There was an informal customer promise going out, dependent by each store. Particularly when you've got a a mix of franchise and retail stores, the customer promise can vary, and it was informal. And just by putting a customer loyalty program formalizes a proposition for a customer, and actually helps obtain a single customer view for this client. One thing I've been banging on. There's always been this demand for a single customer view and they'll spend an inordinate amount on software and hardware to enable it rather than just put a customer identifier in the front of every transaction and there's your customer loyalty program.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. A lot of the clients I've been involved with and the people I've been involved with, the companies I've been involved in, some of the biggest benefits of the loyalty program are simply that single customer view and the fact that you know who your customers are, who are the highest transactors, and you can communicate with them. And sometimes you almost feel that you should draw the line under that. I know one company that just stopped there and said, you know what, I know who my customers are, I can communicate with them, so why should I even bother measuring it even more than that?
1: Yeah, sorry, uh, building on that, I think those are the companies who essentially are utilizing loyalty for the good, where they're actually leveraging the data and understanding what that single view means. But there are many, many companies, even today, and I'm talking about major players, who literally have all the data, but they're not using it effectively at all. Totally
0: agree. I mean, going back to this thing, I I always see it as being a bit of a spectrum of need. And by this, I mean there's sort of three types of companies in the world. At one end, you've got what I call active loyalty. This is kind of the Harley Davidsons of this world or Arsenal Football Club or they're the things that you love and that your loyalty to those brands are driven by a love that's some kind of feeling in your body yeah and then at the other end of the spectrum there's passive loyalty where you just have to shop there my dad came from a, a remote fishing village in Scotland it only has one petrol station there is only one petrol station for 50 miles everyone in that village fills up at that petrol station because they have no choice and then in the middle i see a thing called reflected loyalty which is lots of people shop at places and are loyal to places because of some other reason that's completely separate from that brand and i think that's the area that we kind of focus on because if you're harley davidson you don't need a loyalty program god forbid that they've ever got one because you know if people have got a tattoo of your brand on their arm you don't need any number of loyalty programs to sort that out um glad you see arm yeah, whereas if you're in a, in a town where you've got five petrol stations and you'd get, and a petrol company would end up in court if they didn't sell you decent petrol, then you need some differentiator. And that's where the reflected loyalty piece comes in. And that's where the science that I love
1: comes in. Absolutely. And I, one of the other things as well that we've been in this space long enough to be able to verifiably say that loyalty programs are the. Marketing tools available to you certainly during a recession. Those are the—that's exactly where you go when there's a downturn in the overall uh, economic, uh, you know, marketplace. These are the people that you rely on to to go after to sustain your business.
0: I totally agree. And in fact, in those circumstances, there's also a double bubble. If you're a hotel retailer or, or an airline, because if you have a downturn in sales, you've got inventory that's available. I had an MD that used to describe frequent flyer businesses like a magpie at the side of the road of the airline, you know? So that if the airline's in trouble and something gets run over, the magpie jumps in because we can drive more sales and use the unused inventory profitably.
2: Well, just going back onto the discussion around the loyalty program, one of the things that sure you you gentlemen would have uh, come across it is that people believe that a loyalty program is a points program. And it's... Trying to ch- get them to broaden their view around what a loyalty program is and the rationale around it, and rather than look at the mechanism for delivering it, there needs to be an almost like an initial discussion to move people's thinking away from just saying, "Oh, you, we're going to earn points and they can redeem for stuff." Could like I was of all things, I was uh, watching a surf break and talking to this guy, and he said his wife has got a store and she wants a loyalty program. I said, "Well, her loyalty program isn't a points program because." It's a, the frequency of visitation doesn't warrant it. What she should yeah. be doing is exactly. running an email campaign, talking to her customers, doing VIP nights, using a lot of the, the local community stuff. And I think a lot of people tend to forget about a, what the, the breadth of a loyalty program extends through to the customer service proposition, making sure that's bang on because you want the repeat customers, you want to know who those customers are. You would then have the mechanism to talk to them but then you also can use a lot of internal experiential capabilities that are already in play that you can then bring to life through the customer. Audit. Again, going back to the point we said before is because you know the customer now, whereas before you didn't.
1: Yeah, it's, it's kind of... It, one of the things that I find interesting over time is when we really speak about them as loyalty programs... Are we specifically talking about loyalty? Because over time you have seen that kind of have peaks and valleys in the sense that, you know, the very, very first kind of program was all about frequency. It was all about getting somebody to, to spend more, interact more with me and, and so forth. And I think that was the objective certainly of the Advantage program at the very beginning um, and these programs were eventually kind of, people spoke about them as frequent flyer programs, frequent guest programs and so forth. And then the language kind of evolved into loyalty again. And people start talking about loyalty and it's, it's kind of become this throwaway term in some ways to, to be the umbrella under which everything kind of sits when you really need the the culture of the organization to understand what loyalty means and buy into this is why we have this type of program. We believe in it. This is what we intended to be able to do. And in many cases, it should enable you to recognize your very top guests or, or customers or whatever. And to your point, Craig, it needs to be beyond the currency of just points or miles and so forth it's really about a, a, a sustainable relationship that has return on both sides.
3: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm well known I think for saying the words, the worst word that we could have chosen is an industry, loyalty, because loyalty, other than oddly the two examples you, you give Ian, but loyalty doesn't exist. So when people call me in, I usually start with, don't talk to me, we shouldn't talk about customer loyalty, we should talk about customers and, what, and your business and what you're trying to do and what your challenges are and work back from there. And then often, uh, some form of program is part of the solution, but you can't start with the program. You've got to start with the business and the customer and work back.
1: Totally agree.
3: Totally agree. So moving on from that, I
0: think let's give some solid examples. So what in our experience are the best case studies we've seen? So if you, if someone put a gun to your head it said, does loyalty really work? You said, yes, I can tell you loyalty works because I've seen it in this example. Can we think of any there?
1: Yes, all the programs I've been involved in. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Good answer, <laughs> he says. <laughs>
0: I, I will.
3: I will probably add to that, but because uh, I, I was lucky enough with Velocity that we were able to do it from scratch, and that gave us the the ability to actually measure things that most programs that's already up and running can't measure. So we did two massive pieces of work. One was a five year PhD. Uh, project with with uh, one of the big units in Australia, using the European supercomputer, and another was a, just a massive internal piece of work looking at people that joined versus didn't join, and going back years and, and forward years. And both of them came up with a solid, statistically valid number, which proved that the program was absolutely driving core business value. But uh, it was making a profit in its own right as well, and that's what people get excited about. But we proved zero doubt. That the program was driving massive core business value, and the ratio at the time was that for every dollar that Rossi made as, a, as an individual program, it, made, it delivered ten dollars of revenue to the airline. That ratio fell over time as the program became more profitable, ironic. But the impact to the to the airline was proven to be massive. Craig, do you have any examples there?
2: Yeah, I don't know. If there's always exactly the one thing I thought Phil was going to go on about, and it goes on about lots Every, of things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure well, i sure, sure yeah, everyone's sure sure. seen it is there are campaigns that absolutely rock the socks off. And you see some significant returns on loyalty and then you see campaigns that just don't work. Cool. And and the great thing is now you know and now you've got the capability to measure why they didn't work, or did they did a discount offer go to value add customers, for example? And they go, Well, it's irrelevant for me. Did campaign go out in in this neck of the woods on Anzac Day? Well, everyone's on holiday so no one's going to open it. So the the time, there's all these different attributes, whether the offer is rich enough or generous enough, always these various attributes. The, the one thing I get interested on is the engagement of a campaign, the engagement of loyalty, the return it provides for a business. And in that return is not just here's a campaign and this is an increase in sales, which typically you tend to achieve. It's more the knowing your data and knowing customers and how they're used. And I think, as David alluded to earlier on, is around in the broader business sense, and Phil mentioned it as well, is around how you utilise that data to actually drive your business. One of the things we, did at, we were doing at Flybys New Zealand when I was there was the underpinning data was then used for store location and then store merchandising to look at why would a, a, a particular location of a supermarket be in one part of the country, what would be the impact on a competitor, what would be the impact on an existing supermarket in their chain and in their network, and then they'd be work out the profitability of that store pretty exactly. And on the flip side, it was also looking at how do you why do you stock the same merchandise in that store which has got a higher socio demographic than one in a lower socio demographic. And that's a, a, a really interesting discussion because it then opens up the a broader role of people want to be customer focused but typically in a lot of the retail stores merchandising drives a lot of the offer generation so you have a cultural discussion going on within a a company about the impacts of if we go down a particular route this uh, balance of power then starts to shift.
0: It's a really great point Craig and there's a case study that's really well covered in scoring points by Clive Humby and Terry Hunt, which is the classic text on how Tesco created Tesco Clubcard and used that platform to maximise the value of the data that it produced. For me, I had, very early in my career, I worked on a programme called Alliance Leicester Moneyback Credit Card, and in that programme, it was one of the first, it was a sort of a coalition where you could collect money back at lots of different places, and there's lots of models like that now, but I think this was the first or second one in the, certainly in the UK market. Within this card, we launched a partnership with BP, and we we did some data analysis uh, about a year after we launched. And from that moment on, I knew that loyalty worked simply because we had a track of four major players in the UK petrol market. And we saw when we launched the program, we saw in the first six months after launch, we saw BP's transactions and value rise by 80 percent on this card. And so the marketing manager thinks, brilliant, I've done a massive success. Transactions have jumped by 80 percent. Whereas the finance director will sit there going, well, that's just payment substitution. These customers could have quite easily come in and paid cash. So I don't believe a word of it. They're just paying on credit card, and credit cards cost me more money. So, But actually, if you looked at what happened in the six months following launches, it maintained that level until ESSO launched price Watch, which is an everyday price guarantee against the supermarkets. And that had an instant reaction on market. They took market share from everyone with that Price Watch campaign. But to your point, Craig, as soon as they stopped advertising on TV, their mark went right back to where it was before. And then four months later, they did exactly the same thing and they had exactly the same hit on the market. But four months later, when they stopped, it was back to the same. And BP, through this point, sustained their 80% lift in sales. But what actually proved it beyond doubt for everyone was just what had happened at the supermarkets, at Tesco specifically, where... BP, stole market share from Tesco, by 2%. And that couldn't have been payment substitution because why would someone have changed their payment behavior at Tesco?
1: Um,
0: And so to me, that was absolute proof of how it worked. But to your point, Craig, the only reason why they could see that because the stained communication over six months of the partnership to raise the awareness and to keep it there. And I've seen lots of programs that have had fantastic propositions that don't get the same results, simply because they haven't sustained the awareness or built the awareness over long enough. From that moment on, I knew this works, it absolutely works. I also preached to lots of my partners just to say, you know, measure benefit on your share of wallet. You know, find the means of measuring share of wallet and monitor it because then to your point, David, if you go through a recession, everyone's sales are going down, but you want yeah. your sales to go down less than everyone else's. And therefore having a reliable share of wallet through either credit card data or through some kind there's lots of ways in getting that market data now is that so valuable because then you can really see the benefit
1: yeah there's two examples that i have and one one kind of caught me by surprise at the very beginning kind of goes back to autozone again so they constantly surprised me all good by the way but one of the first questions I asked when I got to AutoZone was, you know, what are we trying to achieve? And one was that they wanted to they wanted to create stickiness, and they also wanted to see if there's a way in which they could increase spend by customer. And the average, which surprised me, the average spend of the average basket at AutoZone stores in the United States at that time was $18. See? Now... I had always thought that this would be about fifty or sixty dollars. I just kind of in my head kind of thought anything mechanical, anything to do with an auto part would would be up there. But when you start thinking about the fact that people are going in there getting oil or they're going in getting wipers and whatever, then maybe maybe it starts to make sense. So what we started to look at was at the stores that you had an average basket of $18, can we get that to $20? And we took a sample size of 300 stores and we held those out against a test cell. So we had a a test cell of about 300 to 350 stores and we had a control group of 300 to 350 stores. And the correlation in sales was in the high 90s. And the spend, the average basket, all we did was we introduced a frequency kind of program, you know, five purchases of 20 bucks gets you 20 bucks back. And in the test stores, the average basket jumped to $43. Now that was mind boggling. It was like, holy crap. Something's wrong with something's wrong with the data, but the great thing was that AutoZone actually had over five thousand stores, so there was a there was a huge kind of asset there, allowing us to kind of test a little bit more. So we took a, another three hundred stores and tested those, and we almost had identical results. I think it. I think the. The highest we ever got to amongst uh, one particular group of 300 was about $47. And this all of a sudden became, we need to get this in every store going forward. And we kind of brought that project in an accelerated way. But what I found extraordinary at that time was the power by just putting something very simple in place that consumers got immediately They felt that they were getting a return immediately. And AutoZone were starting to not only lock in their existing customers, but word was getting out on the street that, hey, I shouldn't be going over here to Advance or to O'Reilly or whomever. I need to be going into AutoZone and getting a return on this. And subsequently, what that led to was those other auto parts stores introducing their own loyalty programs, because I think they started to see the impact of a first mover uh, in that space. So that was one. One of the other things Craig mentioned it around the marketing elements, and you have to constantly learn from what's working in the marketing place. What offers are working, whether they be tactical or whether they're you know, something that's part of a, a bigger plan and then understanding the sensitivity of the levers within and being able to adjust those over time. But what fascinates me is there's a science there and you constantly learn based on consumer behavior and you start understanding what are the sensitivity levers that I can adjust in my offers to actually drive different types of behavior. JetBlue was slightly different. JetBlue was an airline. So... We had a situation where we had a program uh, where people were earning and really kind of redeeming on the the highly desirable routes. And that obviously puts pressure over time on any airline and it has a downward kind of negative uh, experience to the customer. Because at some point in time, we were going to find we can't actually deliver seats to to these uh, redeeming members, because they were capacity controlled. And this is, we're talking about back in the day. And then by introducing a, a revenue-based program and showing the flexibility on the redemption side, where you can actually get value in all, uh, all your flights. Classes. We saw, yeah. we exactly, and we started seeing a shift in behavior from people redeeming, let's say on long haul, to really redeeming into mid, you know, medium haul and short haul and so forth, and really starting to play and participate in the program, and that actually to me was an interesting phenomenon that we were able to go back to the the revenue management side of the business and say, look, we're actually creating the right type of uh, engagement with with our members over time, and that's going to drive a rate premium and we were able to prove that out as well. But Mm -hmm. regardless of what company you're working for, or regardless of what company is introducing a loyalty program, the program has to reflect the the core values of the company as well, and the culture of that company. And it can't be separate. And as soon as it kind of gets detached from that, you actually lose uh, any element of loyalty. It now becomes a tactical marketing tool, which ultimately will lose all view of the brand that it's associated with. So you've got to make sure that culturally it's adopted right across the organization from top to bottom.
0: And and that often, in my experience, that often depends who it reports to. So say, for example, that an airline, I've seen it report to marketing. I've seen it report into revenue management. And both of those have completely different scores about how they measure success. But I've equally seen in retail loyalty reporting to the finance department which is normally a means to an end <laughs> i
2: was about to say finance was <laughs> i've seen not, it in a, it used to report there
0: yeah it's, it's it's often not the best place for a loyalty program to reside but they, it, it does happen
2: um, it's a, what is yes, the one thing i found interesting on on that discussion david was so when i started at anset frequent flyer we i was talking to i think phil and Nina about this on one assignment was we used to have people who were points junkies and they'd end up sitting around the dinner table talking about how many points they had and that was their focus and whereas you actually I was of the view that you go you want them to redeem their points it wasn't the points balance that they had was the important thing is what they're doing with the conversation then we had was in uh, interesting because it was going if that's what the customer wants then it fills their boots then happy days um, but whereas I was more of the view viewers I wanted the customer to redeem to engage The thing I was interested in your discussion, Dave, was around the shift in behavior from moving to revenue recognition. The the long haul into medium haul and some short haul, it it must have opened up that customer's eyes to the ability to, I can use my points in a currency I can use for anything now rather than thinking I've got to build it up and use it as my long-term holiday.
1: Exactly. And, and that, that's exactly right, Craig, because uh, redemption is the key to loyalty. So once yeah. somebody actually gets to experience that, that's when they start really kind of engaging with your, with your program and your brand. And what we were seeing was by allowing people to get to that a lot sooner, then they were actually investing in the airline in a much more uh, engaged way going forward
0: but that's where vacant. measurement does become difficult because um in my, i I completely agree with the psychology of it um and I was at once at a conference where um there someone was discussing this golden moment of redemption so I came back from the conference and said great so if I look at redemption um I can see people becoming more loyal afterwards and I couldn't find it until unless people were redeeming twice you saw an uplift in in loyalty afterwards but the first two redemptions I wasn't we weren't seeing it and and I, what I make of that is I don't this doubt the psychology. What I doubt is that there are some people that might check out when they get to there in the same ones, and there are some people that kick on. And I think that you you do tend to lose some people when they redeem. And in statistics, it's it's difficult. This is the problem with loyalty; it's difficult to measure. And there are some, you know, looking at very specific parts of it, and I we could not find that golden moment particularly.
2: I think we used to see it in flybars where you had that. The challenge was it wasn't so much the like we saw in other uh, studies I've been involved with, there've been significant lift in tenure and interest income and and the like. Uh, but in flybys, the, to your comment, um, Ian was around uh, when they redeem. That's a moment you've really got to get them back earning again.
3: Yeah, but one thing you've got to be really really careful of is averages, um, yeah. because in any customer in any customer base, there's there's there are groups of different people that are doing it for different reasons, and when you put them all into one big group and and try and look at them all as one co- cohesive group, then you often miss what's actually going on. Uh, I've I've done stacks of work with this, and and there are some people that redemption isn't their thing. The programs got to be designed for for enough customer segments to make it work.
1: Phil, haven't you ever heard of the the average of averages? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's like my God, but I, I, you know, one of the things Ian you, you spoke about was not seeing it, and I think that's actually does allow us an opportunity to explore how we market to people as soon as they redeem, and not kind of sit back and expect them to just kind of continuously go forward. I actually think that's where the opportunity is is as soon as somebody redeems, market to them immediately with another offer going forward and then you're starting to increase uh you're starting to actually introduce almost a a a dialogue with them over time
3: yeah it's funny i saw um, a presentation by one of the big naughty groups won't name them and the the conversation the presentation talked about the golden redemption so when people redeem their sales go up and then he put up all the graphs on the board and the graphs proved the opposite Um, and it was a little bit embarrassing now i actually know why that was because of the nature of the industry he was presenting on first redemption is actually can be in that industry it was um a a key point of attrition so they they dump their points and off they go i agree so if if you're collecting if you're collecting points over
0: three years for a flight okay you could attract you could you could stop at any one point in that and you, you then have a redemption, um, and a bunch of people stop collecting. It's just because it's a moment in time, Craig. It's to your point. What you're not um, measuring is all of the growth in loyalty and the, be- the benefit of loyalty you've had over that year. You're just focusing on a bit of a point. I believe that redemption has to be good for loyalty, to your point, David. But actually, in the statistics, it's actually very difficult to prove. <music> Now guys we we're all playing to the same god we all we've talked about loyalty but we all know loyalty programs end as well and I'm sure around the table we've involved in a number of decisions that have ended loyalty programs so let's talk about that why do programs end do they end for good reasons anyone have any examples around the table I
3: can say that there's two main reasons that they they end one is that they are either badly designed or weren't right for the business in the first place yeah. and and, and that, so ending them is actually the right thing to do but more common is that they're just badly managed. Craig mentioned that a lot of programmes don't communicate with customers, or if they do, it's one size fits all. And there's a lot of programmes just exist. And program and, and companies put a programme in, expect it to be magic, expect immediate results, don't get them, and then it just exists for a while and they take it off. Um, that it, It's certain if you do that, that's what's going to happen. Uh, I, I, I talk about programmes being like a shark that it, keep, it needs to keep running, it, keep, it needs to keep swimming, it needs to keep doing things. And if it does, then it, it can be phenomenally successful. But if it doesn't, it won't work. And then they end.
2: One program I saw here in New Zealand worked successfully well. And it worked too well for the client. It was like there's an imbalance of um, benefit to the value when tipped over to the customer rather than being equal between the customer and the business. And the way they managed their exit, they went rather than change a customer proposition to make it more balanced and shift the program forward and run it on a long-term basis. So they migrated it into a coalition program and then stayed with that coalition for a period and then withdrew from that coalition program, blaming that coalition program as their exit me- methodology. But it was that short-termism around, the agree around the program not being set up properly, but if it is set up, having the strength of Carrot to look and go, well, we've actually got customers engaged in our program. How can we do 2.0 or 3.0 to actually give it a bit of life and get back and understand more about what the customer needs, what they're after, how can we meet it? How can we get a, a financially stable program in place that works for everyone?
0: I t- totally agree, Craig. In my experience, the ones I've seen close are, you're right, Phil, it's because they're badly designed or they're badly executed, but um, ultimately, most profitable time a loyalty program exists is the day you close it because to your point Craig if you're successful at building loyalty over time you build 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 your customer base grows your revenue base your revenue grows your profit grows but your costs grow as well along with that loyalty program the day you stop you've got all those customers you've got all that revenue and all of a sudden you've got none of the cost say in a utility program that is your ultimate position and that's very attractive for um, management teams because you know you can say, well, if we cut it now, we can keep those customers and we have another cost. But I think that's a very short-termism view. What they should do is really understand the value of those customers and really understand the value of that program and really understand whether it should kick on because there's no point doing that later.
1: Totally agree. I, I would also say that there are instances where There's a change in either leadership or whatever it is, and you will actually see over time that loyalty programs are viewed from people outside of loyalty as, oh, it's great, I see the results, I see the revenue coming in from this, but how do I reduce the cost of it? And there's a downward kind of pressure then on the loyalty team to say, okay, run it more efficiently. Reduce costs, reduce costs. And the only way you can reduce costs over time is by impacting the customer value proposition. And if, if you start taking away from the customer value proposition and rather than investing in the, the customer, you're actually going to kill the program over time. And I do think that that's a very naive view for leadership to kind of look at loyalty programs and say, okay, love the revenue stream, but I want to reduce my costs. When in fact, if you actually start investing in the customer side of things, you'll actually start to see incrementally greater revenue at the same cost. And I think that's, that's a learning for all organizations to, to keep, in, keep in mind.
3: Yeah, but a lot of the um, tools are in our own hands because one of the challenges I think is that, that the cost of a program is very transparent, or in a good program, it's very transparent, and sometimes the revenue is harder to prove. But the, the data is there. The data is there to prove the revenue, and once you have both sides of the story, then it's it's I find it very easy to have a, have an argument against cutting costs when when there's a, a revenue attached. And then then the question is, well, if you want to cut costs, are you happy to reduce the revenue at the same time? And it's, it's in all but one case, it was it's, it's very, um, it's been successful of deflecting def- them away or deflecting them away from the uh, cost issue.
2: And the great thing yeah. about that, Phil, is you've got to understand the revenue impact. You've got to get your finance team on board. And therefore okay. they're the ones who usually go, we've got to cut costs, and you go, hang, but then because they understand the revenue impact, they go, oh, hang on, we won't do that one, we'll do that one.
0: On the subject of what closes law to programs, in my experience is probably 80% of them are being closed by, by, by a people element. It's about ownership and credibility. The program was put in place by this team, and they believed in this, and then a new management team comes in and says, I think that wasn't right, and I can prove, because proving loyalty either way if you gave me a set of statistics and a set of data i reckon i could prove loyalty either way for any company in the world and it's a it's a question of kind of believing and credibility and if if an old management team left and there's a big cost and a high customer base and a loyal base it's very it can be often a very easy decision to flip it around and make it look bad and close it down and make this team look good in fact i I I went to a a reunion. I left a company. We had a big party, a big launch of a loyalty program. I, and everyone in the in the in that company was desperate to tell me they were part of the launch. And then I went back about six years later when they closed the loyalty program. And almost everyone at that that party who knew I worked previously was desperate to tell me they were part of the, what closed it down. <laughs> and it's in the same company. And and you know, and I bet if we had a look at the statistics, you could probably argue it either way. And so I think in my case, I think it's the humans that close that down. And I think it does need a very, a very objective view to be able to really understand the benefit of these things.
1: Yeah. I'm. I'm one of the things that I, I mean, that's very noticeable, I think, over. Certainly you see it in the uh, hotel space more so than the airline, I suppose, but in the advertising, you're starting to see the loyalty program become the main brand. That's the leading brand yeah. when it comes to marketing the overall experience. Yeah. You know, S- SPG was the lead uh, brand for Starwood Hotels. Uh, Bonvoy now is leading for, for Marriott. Honours was, was obviously leading for, for Hilton for the, the, the longest time. You don't generally see that in the airline space. And I wonder, is that an opportunity? Because people actually do feel emotionally attached to the currency that they're earning, in some cases, more so than they are to the overall brand. And I wonder, is that something that we should explore at some point? You're
2: contradicting yourself from earlier in the podcast,
1: I from, from From earlier on, yeah. I We We can edit that out.
0: It's okay. We can edit that out. Yeah,
1: but... Uh, <laughs> But I'm wondering though, and it's based on this conversation that as you start thinking about what actually is happening, are people loyal to the brand or are they loyal to the currency?
3: I I do think that's a real case of it depends. It depends on the industry. It depends on the the, the particular, whether it be an airline or a hotel chain. And it depends on what the customer expects and wants. I've seen many good examples both ways.
2: Is it a product uh, discussion? Like if you're in a commodity product and you've you've resigned yourself to being a commodity product, do you then lead with your loyalty brand?
3: I still think it's it depends. one of, one of the things I, I, I pride myself on is 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 every single client I go into, I, look, I try to look at them for, for for what their business is like at that time with their customers. and it, I, I, I do I do worry that sometimes it's too easy to look at, at either competitors or or other people, yeah. or other companies. Yeah. And, and try and fit someone else's strategy to your business. Okay. Um, okay. And, and, and it can also change over time. But what's right at one point in time can evolve and be and, and not be re- re- relevant a little bit later. Yeah, I agree. I, t- I totally agree. I think a good case of that
0: is whether you're a market leader or a market follower. Because if you're a market leader like, like Tesco in the UK, they don't need a coalition program because they're nailing it. Or at least yeah. they have been nailing it in the past. So it's often the, the second in the in the market that is the strongest contender for a coalition program because they've got the most to gain from ganging together and, and therefore they're prepared to give the cost away to someone else to do it. And then if you're third or fourth or fifth, then price, you know. And I think you see that in the UK market, in, in, in supermarkets, and it makes total sense strategically. I agree. So finally, there was a question. David, when we talked about this first of all, you were saying, is it just a cost of doing business? uh uh-huh. hmm um, so, if we said there's programs that should be keep going we've said in this podcast, or there's great reasons to have put loyalty programs there's also great reasons to shut them down, then is it just a, is it just the cost of doing business for the ones that are in the middle doing it
1: Yeah, it kind of comes back to the, the very the, the very first question when we start, when we started speaking about the reasons why you should have a loyalty program in some cases you start, you start to see that there's an opportunity for you to actually steal share from somebody else. And over time, what you'll actually start seeing is competitors then are starting to look at what are they offering versus what am I offering? Do I need to kind of come step up to the plate? Or am I going to change my overall experience and give something back to to the customer that doesn't necessarily require a a points-based program? And I think both Phil and Craig mentioned it earlier on, a loyalty program isn't all about you know points or miles it is about the interaction with that brand so is it a cost of doing business it probably is it's a marketing cost but how you execute it uh, over time is you know that's the, you have to get some level of roi there my personal feeling is that you have to have a marketing strategy that leads into your overall commercial strategy and if loyalty is part of that then great but i don't think that loyalty should be leading the overall commercial strategy i think it needs to be part thereof
0: i agree i agree in my experience if you ever get to a point where you say that what you do is a cost of doing business then that's a dangerous place the only thing i would recommend to any person working in loyalty is to make sure your costs are a cost of doing business so you want to have your cost of loyalty program justified within the operating cost of the business otherwise it could be if it's stuck in marketing it gets raided and if it gets yeah. raided then you can't do the things that you're meant to do all the time which is campaigns
2: exactly and i think going back to the comment Phil made around uh around the revenue piece and the finance guys i think that's a very important component to to help justify I, I look at also the technology capabilities in the market now and with all the marketing stack, there's no such thing as a set and forget campaign because it may you may go, we'll run this every Friday. Oh, hang on, it's on Good Friday, so no one's going to receive it. So there's always little anomalies um, that you need to think about. And so I think your point, Ian, is bang on around if, if you're going to have a loyalty program, it's the costs need to be included as an operating cost of the business so you still have that marketing capability. It links right into what David was saying. You're not going to do the loyalty program if it's not linked into your marketing program, if it's not linked into your business strategy.
0: Well, thank you for that, Craig. I'm sorry to say that's all we have time for this week. So thank you, Craig, David, and Phil. But most of all, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the word amongst your friends and colleagues. But also please like, share and comment via social media and feel free to join the conversation using the hashtag loyaltypodcast or by using the email loyaltypodcast at newworldloyalty.com and we look forward to your company again soon. Thank you.